you might well have called it the dark ages. <laughs> Whilst I did everything I could to, to make a normal family, we didn't live our life the right way. Things are only great for a certain amount of time when you're in that sort of life. I literally, within one week, gave up all drugs, smoking, alcohol, lifestyle, girlfriend, the whole lot. I just picked it up and I walked away. There is only one way I could do that. And I can tell you now, it was the addiction recovery program that the church put on. As a young boy, my uncle Toby Thornton was inquisitive, fearless, and always getting into mischief. Calling himself the original ADD kid, his thirst for adventure meant he wasn't ever sitting still for too long. As he grew, these boyish escapades took a bit of a darker turn and led him down a path away from God, family, and the stability of his childhood. The Dark Ages, as Toby describes it, turned out not to be the life of glamour he'd first imagined. Rather, decades of turmoil and heartache that took immense strength to emerge from. Toby is now a devoted husband, father of seven, impressive cook, passionate drummer and avid surfer. He can even be seen riding on his jet ski to get to his home teaching families. I sat down with Toby to hear more of his story and learn how he's been able to overcome a number of challenges and addictions and ultimately find joy and peace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just a little content disclaimer, in this episode, we do cover some dark themes and personal experiences that are not intended to be glorified. My name is Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we talk with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith in contemporary Australia. Welcome, Toby. I'm really excited to have you here. You've got an amazing story, and I just can't wait to hear about it in more detail. Thank you so much. I would really love to hear about um, a little bit about you. You grew up in Adelaide. What part of Adelaide was that? I grew up south of south of Adelaide at the beach. We were beach bums. Um, my parents uh, coming out from England, that's all they wanted to do was live the Australian lifestyle. So beaches and barbecues and, and holidays were our thing. Mm-hmm. And you um, are a surfer? Yes. Yeah. Um, growing up at the beach, I, uh, I think I stood up on my first ball surfboard when I was four. Um, I surfed some decent ways when I was about seven mm-hmm. on a boogie board. And, uh, yeah, I kind of haven't looked back. I'm a bit mad in that area, which is good fun. That is amazing. I surfed for the first time last year and realized I should have been doing this my whole life. Why did I really just start now? I know. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's, it's an incredible feeling to be riding a wave. It is something that allows the adrenaline to release naturally and in the right way. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a thrill seeker. So. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> so for those who don't know you, how many people are in your family? Is it a big family, small? Uh, we have, there's five children, mm-hmm. uh, four boys, one girl. Amy's just one of the boys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, decent sized family, which made up for our lack of extended family. Mm. Um, we had cousins, um, which lived in a different state all our lives. So, um, that, uh, we didn't have no grandparents. I, I met my grandfather on my mom's side twice. Um, 
of which made an, a massive impression in my life. But um, ask me about that later. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it, it, having a big family, as I said, made up for uh, the, the small family that we did have in an extended area. Um, you know, uncles, aunties, and all that sort of stuff we didn't have. And your parents are converts. What kind of impact did that have in the way that they raised you? I didn't notice any difference because I, I'm the fourth in, in line. Um, they, they converted when my two eldest brothers were, were young kids um, and uh, I grew up um, in a child's mind, you know, hey, your parents are your heroes when you're younger. Um, I felt like no one was members of the church like my parents. They were the most faithful <laughs> out and I would see other, see other people and they were the most righteous people I ever knew. So I didn't notice any difference. Um, but, uh, what I did notice was, um, the difference from myself to other people around yeah, me. Yeah, for sure. Um, you grew up with that influence and it was kind of, I assume all you ever knew. Yes. At what stage did you think, wait, people think differently. People don't go to church every Sunday. Um, I guess, uh, <sighs> I tampered with both worlds and I didn't really know too much of the differences when I was, when I was younger, say primary school age. Um, I, I was naughty. I got into trouble. I got grounded and I just thought that was part of life. Um, but as a child, my, my faith in God was, it was unwavering. Um, it was incredible to say the least. I have had many experiences throughout my life, many spiritual experiences, and they started from a very young age. Um, I uh, witnessed um, miracles uh, within myself. I relay one incident of where my brother was hitting a cricket bat, um, a, a ball on a cricket bat up and down and up and down. He says, hey, Tobe, catch the ball. But little did I know he was joking. I went to catch the ball and he hit my arm in the elbow with a cricket oh. bat and bent it the wrong, the wrong oh, way. No. So I get, I get a blessing and I get taken to hospital and lo and behold, after walking past uh, someone in the hospital who's got a broken collarbone, crying her eyes out, um, I get straight in and uh, they say, oh, he'll definitely need surgery. Um, but due to hospital protocol, uh, I had to have x-rays first uh, before they went into surgery and um, they came back and they were negative. And by the time they came back, I was leaning on my arm and my mum's like, which which arm did you break? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, so mum's put her head down as we walked past the lady with a broken collarbone who's still waiting in an emergency. Um, and uh, there was nothing wrong with me. No two ways about it. Miracle. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I have heard that many. story. Yeah. Mm. Amazing. I have a, another story to ask about. Yes. Can you tell us about the time that you accidentally burnt down a shed? Well, the word accident <laughs> uh, is a far-fetched stretch of the true imagination. Um, so one of my naughty phases, lighting fires. Um, we, my myself and a guy named Richard Hagen, if you're listening, ha-ha, um, you didn't get grounded as badly as I did. Uh, he got two weeks. So. <laughs> Um, I was nine, I believe. Yeah, we uh, sort of broke into a shed and we found a fridge full of newspapers and a can of kerosene and I just went, hello, one and one equals two. And <laughs> What I'd else seen would it you do TV. with that? I know. I'd seen it on TV, so I decided to make a line of kerosene all the way to the fridge 
and um, we turned the fridge on, of course, uh, and lit up the the newspapers and ran out. So we burnt all the way in a line along to the fridge of newspapers. And I don't know why there was a fridge full of newspapers. And, um, yeah, it kind of blew up and apparently the side wall of the shed got blown, blown out. You didn't and, hang around um, to look at it? No, no. <laughs> the police did catch up with me and uh, I was grounded for, for three months over that month. <laughs> Sorry, mum. <laughs> I love uh, it. So I think it's safe to say that you had your fair share of adventure as a child. Oh, heck yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any memory that stands out for you? I have so many. Um, if we're talking uh, being naughty, I pretty much tried it all. I, I, I didn't consider myself to be a, a criminalistic type person. I was, in, <laughs> I was inquisitive and I was naughty. And if I thought there would be a thrill to get out of something, I would try it. Mm. Um, growing up, was, it was a very big roller coaster, I suppose, um, finding my way as, as an individual. Maybe we should start by telling the story of when you first started to take your own path and what did that look like? So I distinctly remember, apart from the many naughty things that I did, which I believe was just me being inquisitive in my nature, um, and I'd say mental health issues. As I said, I'm ADD, no problem. Um, these days people call me bipolar, but who knows. Um, <laughs> the changes that I saw that were evident was when I hit a well, – I was probably a young teenager, um, I – uh, was let in a choice of, um, I was doing Taekwondo and I was ballet dancing and I had to make a decision between one or the other because that was, I was going forward pretty full on with both of them and I couldn't keep the both of them up because it required so much time for either one of them. And I, I figured I could do everything, but so I ended up making a decision to stick with Taekwondo. And that was based on the social side rather than um, the, uh, the talent and my interest what, like side. Like the, the stigma of being a ballet dancer as a male or? No, as gay as what it sounds, um, that didn't bother me. No pun to anybody that uh, that, that might offend. It's just definitely growing up in the 80s, uh, you do ballet. Um, there was some moments there where uh, I was held up against a wall and Yes. How gay I really was. And I just pointed out to them that I was dancing with over a hundred women while they were playing football with uh, 16 <laughs> guys on the field and who's touching who up. Um, so that was my defense and that worked out well. Um, right. But, so you just had more friends in Taekwondo? Then? Um, no, the type of friends I had in Taekwondo, there was drinking, mm. there was smoking, there was all the things that you wouldn't have expected in a high energy sport. Um, the type of people that were in that society were definitely macho, um, typical Aussie, you know, seven course meal as a pie and a six pack, um, mm. is very much, um, what I was exposed to and that I, I had, um, you know, I was able to sneak out to events in that area. Um, that my parents obviously weren't aware of because I'm not sure if we've been, I usually tell them everything, but I don't think I've told them about this one yet. They're about to hear it, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> yeah, at Taekwondo events, I was drinking and smoking and carrying on with the rest of them like one of the boys. Um, I got an endorphin rush that that agreed with me. Mm, more than just a one-off prank with the, you know, your nine-year-old buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, no, this was, uh, I was starting to make choices that were heading more long-term decisions. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't to, to um, say that I wasn't grounded heavily. Um, I was at that stage entering into uh, seminary, I reckon. And I did seminary three out of four years. So mm-hmm. uh, whilst I was still learning of the gospel, I was out there doing whatever I wanted. Mm. I think often we have that mentality that we can do both. We we can still have fun and live our life the way we want to, but believe in God and he doesn't mind. <laughs> well, the commitments that we make at baptism aren't at age eight, we don't have that understanding. We, I know we're, our understanding of, of accountability might be there, um, but there's absolutely no way that the covenants I made at baptism felt as serious as when I eventually took out um, the covenants in the temple. At, at my, from my perspective, I felt that, uh, that I should have known some of those things a lot earlier. Um, I understand that you left home as a teenager. How old were you when that happened? I was 16, just short of 17. Okay. Um, again, uh, I'd done the wrong thing uh, when I left home, um, but I was demonised by uh, old school church. I had actually moved, was living in Queensland at the time. We'd moved to Queensland when I was uh, 15. I started an apprenticeship as a mechanic. Worked for a member of the church, a local local ward, and um, I was friends with a young lady there. And we, her and I, were inseparable. And one thing led to another, um, and we had a relationship, uh, a sexual relationship. And um, I was accused of all sorts of things because Daddy didn't want to admit that her daughter had done anything like that. Um, and uh, I was beaten up by her father, her brother, one of the friends, and um, the bishop knew about it and uh, basically said I deserved it and he didn't even call the cops. So it could have been avoided. And then I was virtually, I was basically told to leave um, the Sunshine Coast and uh, never come back, and that was by members of the church. My common saying is there are two parts to what we do, and there is the gospel, which is made of God, and then there is a church which is made of man. And when we realise the difference between the two, we understand how um, God is always perfect and everything that happens. When God wants to let you see all of it, he will let you see. Um, and then you've got the corporation, as I refer to it as, <laughs> which, is, which is the church. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it was a hard time. So, yeah, I was 16, I left home. Um, managed to secure myself some uh, some new employment, um, and yeah, my brother Pete, your dad, and uh, myself, we we got a place. Well, we got a place after we moved out with a friend of his. Um, that was funny. We destroyed her. <laughs> she was a funny lady, and Peter and I just loved to pick on her. And I'm not sure how it ended, but I'm pretty sure it was a mutual decision that she wasn't going to kill us if we left. <laughs> So um, we would just do things like uh, she had a, a fetish for um, not um, wiping your butter back in the community. Someone, you know, if you wipe it back, you don't waste it. Oh, no. It. Yeah. You use everything on your knife. 
<laughs> and so we would look at each other and purposely like, oh no, and put the lid back on, and then just wait for what happened next. You know, little things like that. Couldn't help ourselves. Yeah, good we fun. fun. Good fun. It. Yeah. We ended up getting this condemned house, which was a, an old uh, Queenslander that was owned by the MS Society. Completely condemned. If you look at the slats on the on the timber on the on the side of the house, they dropped about a foot from front to the back of the house. The whole thing was warped and sloping. Very, very old. How much involvement did you have, say, with your parents at that point in time? Um, I believe there was the way under the circumstances that I left. Um, it caused a little animosity between my parents and I. I, I felt that, um, and I guess I I saw them. When they came to visit, um, I didn't visit them that much. I guess it was a lot of tension in the air. They they had been put under a lot of pressure from the church at the time and they were staying in the area, so I think they were demonised a lot as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that helped our relationship at all at the time. Um, but the good part about what happened there is that I um, was uh, in a situation where I lived with a devout church member, which was my brother. He'd just come back off a mission. Um, he was gung-ho about saving the world like all returned missionaries are, and, um, and that was good for me, way good for me. Um, we had a lot of good times and a lot of experiences. Well, it sounds like you had a really good relationship there um, with your brother. Was that always the case or were there times where you didn't really speak to your family? Yeah, no, there were definitely times. Um, so that was the point where my brother and I, I, I was smoking and drinking at that point in my life, um, but I was flirting in and out of the church. I was 17 by the time we'd hit that house. Um, so I was uh, uh, involved in the young adult program because I was out of home, even though I wasn't 18. It wasn't, it wasn't far after that that um, I started uh, really getting heavily into my social life, which involved. Um, just drinking and carrying on with everybody. Um, it was at that point where I, I had tried marijuana when I was younger, but as at that point I started smoking it more regularly and tried my first acid trip. Um, everything just was open on a platter to me. Everything was offered to me and I, I took it up. So I guess the experiences that I'd been through, the hurt that I felt, I felt justified because I felt hurt by things that had happened by people um, in in authority positions, and I guess the tra- the trauma that I'd been through didn't allow me to process uh, the differences that were necessary for me to be strong in the church. So, how did that mentality? How did that shape the next, let's say, decade or two of your life? Um, it. You might have called it the dark ages. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it, because I just had decided that I didn't need that in my life. What other things were happening in your life? You mentioned that you had uh, a first wife. Yeah. So after leaving Queensland, I was there for four years, basically over my time of my apprenticeship, um, and then I decided to move back to Adelaide, and I guess there was a a calling for me to come back to my roots. I was in meltdown mode by that point. Um, and that's when I met somebody. Right. Okay. So that was Tina. That was who you married the first time. 
how was she involved in your life from that point on? You know, what happened there? So um, amazing things and terrible things. So uh, basically we had started a relationship um, and she felt pregnant and that's pretty much how we stayed together. Um, my upbringing was obviously a family is a good, um, a broken family is bad. So that's my, my mindset. Um, she said she wanted an abortion. I said, well, you know, I can't do anything about that. I'm, uh, I'm not the master of the body, um, and that's holding the baby. But, um, if you do that, that's it. We'll, we'll be splitting up because I don't do that. Um, so she made the decision. Um, and before she had made the decision, we had gone around to see a friend who was dying of cancer. She had a brain tumor and she was on death's door and she turned around and said to, uh, Tina that, um, she said, your mother's here with me right now. And she said, you have to keep the baby. We had told no one more proof that the afterlife exists is great. She said that this boy is really special and, uh, without a doubt, you need to you need to you need to keep him. You cannot. And so that was that was what just just uh, helped her decide to not do anything silly. Um, mm-hmm. And we went on to have three children. Um, whilst I did everything I could to to make a normal family, we didn't live our life the right way. Um, and so uh, it got to the point where I started using amphetamines to uh, to work. And I didn't have a problem because, um, and lots of money, lots of money. So what were you doing at the time? I mean, I was a mechanic for many, many years. Um, we ended up moving around until we get ended up in the North of Adelaide, um, on a farm and I was contracting to, uh, General Motors Holden at the plant in their maintenance division. I was market gardening. I was, uh, had my own mechanical business and um, just on fire, like 18, 19, 20 hours a day, no problems. So you were fueling your life and, and thinking, oh, this is great. Yeah, I was on fire. Everything was going well. Um, I was still in party Have mode. Have all this energy. Yeah, I was still in party mode. I still ran a family. I'm like, how, how good is this? But I think at that point I hadn't spoken to almost anyone in my family for about three years. Wow. So it was quite a long time. Um, And then things started to go downhill as they inevitably do. Mm. So at what point did you hit a rock bottom? What did it look like? So it got to a point where my, at the time, father-in-law, he molested my children. And when I found that out, um, we had words to say the least. However, to, to the kicker of this whole uh, whole situation is that um, could I do anything about it? No, because he was he I don't know obviously still today, but he's an Italian mafia. <laughs> so I had no idea that I was going to marry into that family, did I? No idea. <laughs> So that was when things really went down the toilet. Um, I'm thinking, how how could life get this bad? Uh, um, and I think that was just the wake up call that I needed. Now, no one needs that, but it was the wake up call that I had. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that was the beginning of rock bottom. Believe me, whenever you think you can't go any further, 
It, it can. It can. I imagine as a parent, there must be few scenarios that would be worse for your children. That would have been really hard. Yeah, there's not much worse than that. Well, there is, but we don't want to talk about that. So that I guess that um, that brought everything to the surface of what was bad. We were financially tied up with my ex-father-in-law and uh, that was the demise of that. So financially we started spiralling and then uh, I guess the stability was completely gone and I was trying to hold on to everything that I had um, as far as work and, and business and things like that. And so the work started getting less and less, um, but the drugs got more and more and it just... Yeah, that old that old nugget, that old scenario. Um, yeah. Things are only great for a certain amount of time when you're in that sort of life. Yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of um, things kind of spiraling out of control. Mm. Can you recall any moment in particular that was the catalyst for you wanting to change? Yeah, um, initially when we we lost the farm. Uh, we didn't actually believe it was going to happen. Mentally, we couldn't process that we were going to lose it. Um, so we went to a caravan park because we had not arranged anything. We thought, this is not real. This is not happening. Um, so we ended up going from there um, to a housing trust home that I made a deal to get into through a sublet issue, which was illegal. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, yeah. That was, that was fun. So um, we went from there to um, a more stable home um, and those three shifts in a row at a very short period of time after having it all um, made it obvious that a change was imminent. So I says to my wife at the time, uh, we need to change. We need to stop taking drugs. We need to live our life in a different way. And uh, she listened Um, and then I said, look, I think the best thing I can do is to move out. I wanted to say, let's start dating again from scratch in a different way and try and start our life differently. Well, she couldn't cope with that mentality that I had Um, and I don't know if it was right or wrong to suggest it, but um, it didn't work Um, and that was it. She's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not changing. This is my life. It's the way I like to be. And I'm like, well, I actually can't do this anymore. And I knew what I needed to rely on. I knew where my source of light was. I knew where my backbone was. And that was in, in uh, the atonement in, in Christ. So I made the decision. However, it was the rocky road and it didn't end there because as I, um, as I, as I left my wife and um, decided to make a change, she vowed war against me. I'm like, really? So that upset me. And the fact, if you ever know people who take drugs, the first thing they do is lose the plot. And so I lost the plot and, um, and I took more drugs. <laughs> I, I am starting to see what you mean by there's rock bottom and then there's rock Then rock there's bottom. Really rock bottom. <laughs> you, you haven't reached rock bottom yet. Don't worry. It's coming. <laughs> So then we started the whole standard process of breaking up um, in, a, in, a, in a hostile way, which involves a lot of court, a lot of accusations and a lot of child safety programs. So 
um, I en- endured that process for a number of years before I really got right. So rock bottom was when I ended up having this girlfriend and she was living in this complex area and I was watching these kids circle this complex and they were going from unit to unit, um, basically looking for for support, food, emotional, and I found myself cooking for these kids every week because there was a myriad of children whose parents were drunk, strung out, no money, they were unclothed, they were underfed, they were not educated, and I'm like, this is a real problem. I, I, it, it broke my heart. And I then, once I had seen that I wasn't the worst person off, I knew I needed to change because I was looking at this charity case in a, in a community around me where these the government pretty much allows a group of people to live in a commune and that's what it was it was a group of mm-hmm. a group of housing trust people that and, and you should have seen the area too it was beautiful it was on the river these people had it made um, they had money every week they had drugs every week but the poor kids this is why they existed was for the money and that was my rock bottom um, it doesn't sound as dramatic as everything I just explained, but when you see it with your own two eyes and you watch those children neglected the way they are, yeah, that that to me was rock bottom. That was like if you don't change now, there's your future, and and I am not that person. I could not, I could not stand to see that. That was my turning point. I phoned up. My dad and I said, Dad, I need to get out of here. He goes, You've got two weeks. I'm going to come and get you. You've got two weeks because basically they were done with me. Mm-hmm. And I understand that <laughs> totally. Um, and I didn't want any more than two weeks because this was a me thing. I couldn't ask my parents for help. I was in my 30s. Um, I actually just needed to get out. So I just needed somewhere for a couple of weeks. And then I, and I phoned up one of my good friends. And uh, I caught two buses and a train and I went to church that Sunday. And I walked through this community with a suit on, my head held high, and I had all these people just looking at me going, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> so and I went, I'm going to church. And they went, I'm going to tell you what they said. <laughs> but it wasn't very nice. And they were like, are you dead set serious? I'm like, you people are losers. I'm out of here. And basically oh, I packed up my and it wasn't until I think for four straight years I didn't miss a Sunday. Um, yeah, that was the turning point in my life. Thank you for sharing that. I can really feel your pain, uh, but also the love and the empathy that you must have had in that moment for your children. And yeah. for your future children who maybe you didn't even realise were going to come into your life. I didn't. Um, You're right. I didn't. <laughs> no. I, yeah, I'm really, really grateful for you sharing that. It, you, you're right. That That's rock bottom. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what kind of challenges did you face in those four years that you were attending church? I imagine it would have been really hard to kind of put your pride aside given your experiences as a teenager and also what people were saying to you coming back. Was there anything that you oh. found really hard? Well, to start with, everything was amazingly easy because like a well, drug. Just in contrast yeah. to what you did living before. I, yeah. I just took the high and I ran with it and I, I feasted on the spirit. I feasted on um, general conferences. I feasted on everything that I could get my hands on and that drug was the most amazing high that I could ever say I've ever felt. Keeping in mind, I literally within one week gave up all drugs smoking, alcohol, lifestyle, girlfriend, the whole lot. I just picked it up and I walked away. And um, there is only one way I could do that. And I can tell you now, it was the addiction recovery program that the church put on. Um, I attended it with two people that facilitated. They were amazing people. And um, from all the 12 steps that you go through, the 12 programs, I'd finished them and I disappeared and they went looking for me. Where have you been? You never said anything. You just disappeared. I said, yeah, but I finished this. I'm on top of the world. Like, <laughs> it you works. saved my life. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to go conquer my next challenge. Um, <laughs> so because I'm the original ADD kid, um, it, it all made sense. It, it was just incredible. I, I guess the, the hardest part for me was when I had finally um, entered back into the, the realms of, of going to church again. Uh, the, um, the hassles that I had was my reputation um, and that definitely preceded me. Um, when it came to me needing someone in my life, um, I went to my bishop and said, okay, so I'm bored now. I don't have any friends because I've got rid of them all because they're no good. Um, I've come back to church, so I don't do anything extracurricular like, you know, taking substances. <laughs> what I'm do you people bored. do for fun? <laughs> what, what does everyone do for fun? He goes, give this guy a call and I knew him. And I'm like, oh, do I really have to? <laughs> I don't know if we get along that well. Anyway, so I gave him a call and um, he goes, oh, well, we're going to go fruit picking with these girls. He mentioned them as a family. I thought, okay, we'll, we'll go, go fruit picking with them and, you know. Great happy family occasion. I'm saying, well, this is great. Turn up there. There's two sisters and him. And I'm like, hang on a second, two single girls. Wait a minute. I thought we were going on a family <laughs> thing. This is a win. So, yeah, um, didn't take long to become interested in my now wife, who's the most amazing person. Um, and she was warned off by her family members and other people and there were rumours flying around about me and, like, at one stage, I'm like, this is where I'm supposed to be taking solace um, and, and refuge and there's people spreading stuff about me. We weren't allowed to date because both of us were actually still married, um, so we were just friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk, talked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I made a mistake. I, 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 I went out, got drunk, and I phoned her up did the old drunk dial, which is, yeah, I know, right. Anybody that's been in that sort of life is like, don't do that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, told her that I love her and all those sorts of things. And she almost didn't go near me again. And then I phoned up Yikes. Your, your dad and I'm like, what do I do? And he goes, do you want it? And I went, of course I want this. He goes, so go fight for it and don't take no for an answer. And that's what I did. And, um, I never looked back. So, 
I had to fight the elements along the way. As I said, all my reputation preceded me. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, in-laws decided that, well, now in-laws, that, that I was not the guy for her. Um, and uh, I've since proven them wrong and uh, we have a great relationship. Um, yeah, many other things along the way that, that sort of stood in my way. But what was evidently clear to me is that this was ordained of God. Um, and God knew that, that I needed this. And he actually match made us. The bishop directed me to call this guy who directed me to come out fruit picking, who ended up introducing me to my wife, who I took out on a date when I was 18. When I was um, just moved back to Adelaide, I was again flirting in and out of the church. I took this girl out on a date. Um, and, uh, we went to Victor Harbor for breakfast and then a roundabout in the middle of a road for lunch. Um, because that's the sort of crazy things I did back then. Wow. Ah, I have goosebumps. (laughs) Um, so you mentioned the 12 step program, which is the addictive recovery program from the church. Were there any other resources that really helped you? Did you have a counselor or? I did. I did. Um, one of the, the uh, members of the church, he's a psychologist. Um, I went to see him um, and that was suggested by the bishop that that was actually part of my repentance program um, is to be involved in that. And it's interesting. I didn't understand that to begin with. And um, because I've missed out on a lot of church, um, my understanding, especially in crucial years, which is a mission um, and your adult life when you're really studying the scriptures, my understanding of the atonement, was very limited. So uh, my my sessions with my psychologist was imperative to my repentance and to me um, accessing all uh, the values of the atonement uh, and, and understanding that that's not just for repentance, it's for all kinds of healing. And I, I get it now, but at the time I didn't understand and, and, and it helped and I didn't understand how it was helping so well, but it, it I'd seen plenty of people in the past um, and I had no confidence in the, the, the mental professional system at all. Um, but when coupled with um, uh, learning about uh, my saviour the way I should and uh, he was a member as well so I could talk to him. and You could talk to him freely. That's great. I, I can see how that would have helped with the 12-step as well. <sighs> it's fantastic. Yeah. It really was. You touched on the atonement as well, and we talk a lot about that in our Sunday school lessons. We read about it in the Book of Mormon, but it can often feel like this vague, abstract concept. How did your experiences help you understand it as something that's real, as a power that you can actually tap into? How do you explain it? I guess the the term paying it forward, um, I, I... I paid for a lot of things um, along the way, um, which all amounted to that final decision that I made and making a change and making that decision to change was a process that I had been contemplating for a long time and many years. So my repentance program um, started way before I actually made the move to come back to church and change my life. Um, I went back to church and six months later I was taking the sacrament and my first reaction was, that's a bit soon, don't you think? I mean, (laughs) I'm not the man in the hot seat. I'm not telling the story here, but you say it's all good. Go for it. If you say so. And it took a lot of time and and study to to understand 
um, how I was forgiven so easily. And when I look back at things that I had endured and gone through, um, that was part of accessing the atonement, you might say, um, in, in other ways that I didn't realize was happening. So in a way I had been accessing the atonement over a long period of time. And I didn't fully understand that until um, I delved more into what it meant, um, what the Saviour went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, which to me had more bearing than his actual physical sacrifice. That was for my body. That was for me to get another one uh, when I die. Um, But what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane held so much more power uh, in my life anyway for the things that I have done. I, I feel that... I put the saviour through a lot more and I, I, I got to own that. Um, and, and when you feel that and you, you try and own that for something that somebody else has done for you, it means a lot more than I guess the, the physical torment he went through on the cross was almost nothing compared to what he went through in that time in Gethsemane. Well, so if, if I'm understanding you correctly, we can look at the saviour suffering on the cross as for everybody, his moments in the garden were for you. Yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think we've, we've covered a lot um, and we should probably wrap up, but I would really love to hear the advice that you might have for somebody who's in your shoes. It, it could be somebody who's teetering on the fence line um, as a t- young teen, or it could be someone trying to come back, what would you say to them and, and how could you help? Hey, how strong are you? Because if you go live a life like I've done, there's a few things they don't tell you in the sub clauses, <laughs> which such as you relive your life every day. For example, uh, first two years of me changing my life, I'd wake up in a cold sweat because I just put something up my arm and shot it up. And I hadn't, but it was all in my head and I relived it. I'm like, that was not fair. Um, I've just had to relive something that I'm trying to get, get away from. So you can repent and you can come back into full activity in, in the church or even just change your life and not go to church. But um, the sins you commit, you will always remember and you will always take with you. The second thing that I can think of to tell people is is to listen. And in those times of darkness, um, if there's something that I drew on, um, it, we know that the spirit can't dwell in unclean places, but your family members can. And I can attest to this with all of my heart that my grandfather, and I mentioned I've only met him twice and he left a major impression in my life, um, he passed away in the 80s and from that time forward I guarantee you it was him who had my back and he knew what I needed to know and he knew that I was making mistakes so you always need to listen and every time you need to make a decision just contemplate it and even if you don't contemplate it there's going to be someone on the other side screaming for you and batting for you to do the right thing there is hope then absolutely I love it Thank you so much.
I just realized we also forgot to maybe illustrate what your life looks like now. <laughs> we talked a lot yeah, about the bad things, but maybe you should end on a happy life. note. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's do it. Ending on a happy note. My life now, um, I am sealed to a most beautiful woman who always has my back. Um, my family, my children have more than doubled in size. She has four children um, and I have three. And uh, I have a close relationship with her children um, as, as well as mine. I've had two of my three children join the church and are baptized. My son went on a mission. Um, they're just solid. Um, we're not without struggles, but they're still solid. Look, my life is as it should have been. and. Like I said, you have to live with every decision you make. I could have been married to this woman back when I was 18, 19, or I could have gone on a mission and come home and married her. She was she was chosen for me, and I know this, but I have her now, and I have the life that I should have had now, and I am being blessed. The, the leaps and bounds that I have made in this is now nine years. Um, we've, we've been married eight and a half years, so that's nine and a half years. I'm coming up on 10 years of changing my life and I didn't make it this far that quickly um, as I did when I was younger. It sounds like life is pretty good now, though, in comparison. You've- life is sweet. <laughs> I love it. I think I'll, I'll shoot to our final question. Um, the title of this podcast is Choosing Faith to pay homage to the fact that for most of us, faith is a choice requiring active, consistent effort. What does choosing faith look like to you? Faith is like a muscle. If you don't exercise it, it gets weak. Um, and it, 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 is, it is something that you need to work at um, constantly. However, once you've got it, if you deny it, then that's your fault because it is always there. It will never go away but you do have to work at it. I enjoy faith. I enjoy looking forward to the next time that I have something happen to me where I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, the Lord had a hand in this one. And it happens. The more you allow it, the more it happens, and it happens on a daily basis now. I really loved recording this podcast hearing about Toby's experiences and what he's learned along the way. If you know of anyone who inspires you with their faith, please get in touch with me on either Instagram or Facebook with the username Choosing Faith Podcast. I would love the opportunity to meet more members around Australia and discover how they find joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. See you next time.